Welcome. We're so glad you're joining us for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. Today we are joined by our good friend and Somebody Cares Denver director, Michael Walker. He is also the senior pastor at Church in the City in Denver, Colorado. Pastor Michael was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home and saved during the Jesus movement in the early 70s. He traveled with Doug in the early days of Somebody Cares America and Somebody Cares International. And you are about to hear some amazing stories of lives transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus. Remember to check out our episode notes today. You will find those at a awordinseasonpodcast.org and simply click on podcast. Now let's welcome Doug. It's my pleasure today to have a longtime friend, Pastor Michael Walker from Church in the City. Beth Abraham is my guest on A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. It's so good to have you on with us today and looking forward to just sharing for a few minutes about our journeys and how we've worked together over the decades. But one thing I want to talk about before we get into a little bit of your testimony and all that God's doing there at Church in the City, Beth Abraham, and which really is a hub for a lot of ministry in the Denver region and touching nations. As I was sharing recently at your church when I was visiting, you remember a couple of stories. One was back during the Indonesian tsunami, I had sent you along with a part of our team to meet up with our folks, Indonesian friends in Banda Aceh, which was the epicenter of the tragic tsunami that took place where hundreds of thousands were killed. Many, many more were displaced all through that region of the world. And uh, it was the funniest thing as you were sharing uh, before you introduced me the other day at your church, you thought about it after we actually got you airlifted in by helicopter. It was just an amazing opportunity. But then you're in the back of these trucks, you're driving all through this area that is the doorway to Mecca in Indonesia, where there's a lot of the radical Muslims are. This is the one area that is radical, where they actually hate Christians and Jews. And and so while you're there, you're going, wait a minute, Doug just sent me here. And I'm here meeting with the vice governor of the region because the governor was in prison. So for corruption. So the vice governor was the acting governor. Tell a little bit about the story about your, your experience when you landed in Banda Aceh. Well, a little bit of my background is I was raised Jewish. I come from an Orthodox Jewish home, uh, got saved in the Jesus Freak movement uh, in the early 70s. If we get into that. Here I am, we're landing in an environment that I was totally beyond anything I could have ever imagined to help out people that not only hate me and my kind, but actually murder them. And here we are to bring aid to those people. And I thought about my friend, Doug Stringer. (laughs) No, I have to say we flew out very well on Singapore Airlines. I said, this is going to be an amazing time being waited on on that plane. And then all of a sudden reality hits. And there we are surrounded in the most Muslim country in the most Muslim region of that country with people with their hands out saying, we need you to help us, which was pretty overwhelming to me personally. Now, when you had gotten there through Singapore Airlines, at first we had you then go and meet up with part of the other part of the crew that were working with us. And you got airlifted from a military ship into Bandachi, correct? Once we were in Bandachi, we got lifted by the helicopter into the area where the vice governor was 
because okay. all of there were no roads. There were everything was washed out. So the helicopter was the one that took us in the interior of Bondache. And you were telling me the other day, even the optics of that, when you just saw just everywhere you could see was demolished and just devastation. It was like something beyond that you had experienced before. Yeah, as far as the eye could see, where there was a whole city right by the shore, we walked around it and we were stepping on people's shoes and clothes and dolls toys and but not a semblance of any structure whatsoever everything was wiped out mm-hmm. totally wiped out so ultimately even in the midst of a place that would normally hate us i remember the story that you and tom and darren and others that were on that team told me is that the vice governor and this still sticks with me because he said my heart and my mind are in conflict And you all said, why is that? He said, because when 9-11 took place, we danced in the streets at your calamity. But during our calamity, you're not dancing in the streets. You're here helping us. So my mind and my heart are in conflict. And when I think about that, what a life lesson I've learned from things like that, that as we reach out with the heart of Christ in times of crisis, that even those who may not like us, agree with us, They see something, their hearts are tugging because they're able to now to receive the message that we want to bring of good news in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Yeah, we had met these young clerics and they had talked to us and they said, you know, we burn your churches, we murder your pastors, and yet you have come here to wipe the tears off the eyes of our children. Would you forgive us? And then would you tell us about your God? I mean, it was just an amazing opportunity, an amazing window to be able to share, because normally that place is closed to Christians and Jews. But I noticed, and when you look at the tarmac there, that every plane that came for relief was from a Christian organization. There was not one Muslim plane there. And this was the most Muslim country in the whole world. So they recognized that, and they, they saw that, and they asked for forgiveness. And would you tell us about your God? Michael, you alluded to earlier, because you and I have also been right after the Haitian earthquake, and we were all there together. And of Mm -hmm. course, my wife was on the first team that went in. They had to drive through the Dominican Republic, her and Tom and some other leaders that went in and and stayed at the guest house that we were connected to there in Port-au-Prince. But you and I were able to take a team of people that work with medical uh, doctors, feeding programs, Mm short-term shelter, long-term housing, and also grief and trauma. A friend of mine, was able to actually get a plane for us and actually worked it out to where we were able to land where nobody else could land in Port-au-Prince. You remember the stench and, of course, of still decaying bodies as people are still being looked for and the aftershocks. And I know you and your church, even long before your connection with us, Somebody Cares and our partnership, and uh, we've always had a heart to go to the nations, but now you've always had a heart to have the nation's even in your own backyard, there's a part of your congregation. And let's go back to something you alluded to when you said that you got saved during the Jesus movement. Your grandfather was literally an Orthodox rabbi, and uh, you grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home, and you found yourself as a hippie during the during the hippie movement. And yeah. then the Jesus movement came, and, and you actually got radically saved. Tell me a little about how does that happen? How did you end up in California from New York and here you are doing partying and drugs? If you were like me, you probably had really long hair back in those days. And uh, and so tell me a little bit about your story, because I think it fits in the context of even how God's given you heart to help anybody and everybody. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. I've heard the testimony of a lot of Messianic leaders like Michael Brown and so on. We're all drug dealers and we're all 
I mean, when I listen to some of the stories of those back in those days, all of us, we all had a similar story, but we we're all looking for the answer to life, basically looking for love. Uh, and it just, we wound up in all the wrong places doing that. And, uh, you know, I wound up my last journey. I was in South America, Europe, the Middle East, you know, just looking for the answer to life back then. You know, being raised Jewish, you you go through the traditions, but there was still a void of a connection with life and with love. And that's what we were looking for. So I was living on an island called Ibiza in the middle of the Mediterranean and thought, this is the answer to life. Uh, I had a motorcycle, a Volkswagen bus. I lived in a cave and, I, you know, <laughs> this one drug deal a year in Morocco. And you were set and you ride around your motorcycle, pair of shorts, drugs, partying. And I said, this has to be it. I mean, uh, I was like living the life. And then all of a sudden, the dictator of Spain, who was Franco, said, I'm getting rid of these hippies. And he started taking people's passports away and throwing them in prison. And then I said, well, I don't think this is the answer to life. I'm not going to spend it in the Spanish prison. So I decided I'm heading back to New York and uh, actually try and work for a living, you know, try and have a real job. So I had went back there and started working for my dad, who owned a printing plant. And it was really difficult. You know, I took the train from Long Island and three subways, and then you're in a printing plant for eight hours a day. And from going from living in a cave and partying all the time to working in a printing plant, I had to tell my dad, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to California and I'm going to find the answer to life there. So my dad said, if you'd leave, I'll never talk to you again. It threw out this all this Jewish guilt on me. But I said, I can't I can't do this anymore. So I went out to California, started doing all the same drugs, LSD, uh, hanging out with all my Jewish friends that were partying and all that. We were out one night in a uh, restaurant and there were these people that were really happy at the next table. And I always wondered what drug they had that I was missing because anyone happy, I was looking to see how do you, what makes you happy. And uh, so we started passing notes back and forth. And then they invited me to a, um, a dinner that they do up in Malibu every Wednesday night. I said, bring your friends. So we all went there. And we just sang Beatles songs. And I was every week we'd go back there. And they did I didn't know what these people were into, but they were really nice and da da da. And and then finally uh, I had uh, met this girl, Olivia, who actually married George Harrison. Her and I knew each other, and she took me to the guru. And I was sitting there and she says, he has the answer to life. And I said, okay. And so people were raising their hand, give me the answer to life. And he's saying, how long you've come in my meetings? I've been here for three years. He said, you're not ready to have the answer to life. Three years at these meetings. Wow. They kiss this guy's feet. He drives away in a Rolls Royce. And I said, I don't care if the Beatles are into this. I'm not going to kiss this guy's feet for three years. So she went <laughs> off and married George Harrison. I left. And then we're uh, invited to that place in Malibu. And then finally, after a few weeks of going there, and hanging out. Sometimes I was so stoned, I'd crawl in the door and the people just welcomed me and showed me love. I go, wow, these people are really kind. I, I mean, it was amazing. These are the people you met at the restaurant a while yeah. before. Yeah. I, I, cool. Yeah. And then they said, Michael, next week we're having a happening in a castle in Hollywood and we'd really like you to come. And I go, wow, it's going to be one of those wild Hollywood parties. I thought, man, we're going to have a great time. 
So we remembered next week we drove up there with, uh, there were six of us all Jewish from New York in the car thinking we're going to be partying and going to be amazing. So we pull up to this castle in Hollywood Hills and we all walk down this corridor. And I remember getting to the end of this long, dark corridor in this big room and all these people were in it. And I didn't know what these people were into. I didn't know any of these people, but something inside of me said, Michael, this is what you've been looking for your whole life. I walked into the middle of it. My friends went to the father's corner because they were so overwhelmed. It was just a very intimidating sight. So I was just standing there looking around. And then all of a sudden, this guy walks up to me and he just touches me on my head without saying a word to me. I wind up falling over, confessing Jesus as Lord without anyone even witnessing. I didn't even know it was about Jesus. God sovereignly opened the eye, my eyes that were just partially blinded on the Jewish people, and I'm lying on the floor, and I've never seen that before. These people are praying things like the blood over me, and I'm thinking, I must be bleeding because I never heard that language. I must have <laughs> hit the floor pretty hard, but I was lying there, and I was feeling so good, and one of my friends grabs me and said, we got to get out of here. This ain't no Hollywood party. This is some religious thing. And he's pulling me off the ground and I'm looking at these people praying for me and I'm looking at him all angry. And I said, I'm not going anywhere. And so all my friends left and I was the only one left on that floor because something happened to me there that was just beyond anything I could have ever experienced. And I found out that at this meeting, they had invited this Jewish girl to be prayed for and she refused to be prayed for. So the minister, who the one who touched me, says, okay, if the Jews don't want this anointing, I'm going to give it to a Gentile. He didn't know I was Jewish. Wow. I looked like an Italian Pentecostal. I had a, <laughs> a Afro and everything. He said, if the Jews don't want it, I'm going to give this anointing to this, this Gentile kid here. And he touched me, and I got that Jewish anointing that that girl rejected. After that, it was all over. I moved into that castle, and he turned out to be a doctor who was one of the work with Michael DeBakey on the artificial heart. So we had a laboratory in the castle, and he lived in the dungeon, and I lived in the tower, and we were developing the artificial heart that was going to open doors to share the gospel all over the world. Wow. (laughs) What year was that? when That was in 1972. And then you fast forward, then you ended up, how'd you end up in Denver and ended up a pioneering church in the city? My mother took the credit for that. Because when I was back in New York, like in the late seven, I, I left L.A. in uh, like 1979. I stayed there seven years in that ministry. And, and then when I was in New York, my mom would just keep saying, hey, you know, I heard about this place, Denver. There's a lot of young people there and a lot of opportunity and da, da, da. So I wound up, OK, that sounds like a place I might want to check out. <laughs> so I wound up going to Denver. I didn't know anyone there, really. And I went to go to a church, heard a guy on the radio. Tom Stipe, uh, he was, was from Calvary Chapel with Chuck Smith, and then uh, they started a vineyard church, and I wound up being involved in that church. I, my first ministry was to be head usher of the second service, and it was the most amazing thing I could have ever done, because wherever I'd go in restaurants, people would recognize me. You're the guy that takes my money. It was a mega church. <laughs> oh, well, it's nice to be known for that. And then as I just kept serving in that church, the pastor started speaking about ministry to the poor and 
ministry to the needy. In our small group, we started doing Bible studies about ministry to the poor and needy. Then we uh, started doing prayer meetings about ministry to the poor. And then someone had an amazing word of knowledge. Why don't we do something? You know, it's like, oh, yeah, that's a good one. So what do we do? Yeah, we're going to go. Let's go into the city and find some people that are hungry. So we made 200 bologna sandwiches. I was in charge of the mustard. That was my anointing. And we'd find someone on the street corner and hand out bologna sandwiches to them. And we say, God bless you. And then we come back next week, be a different person there. And I said, you know, I think, it, you know, we're meeting a need for an hour or two. Why don't we go to a place where the homeless and poor and needy are? And so I remember knocking on the door of the Samaritan shelter and this Franciscan monk, it was a Catholic shelter, answers the door. And I said to him, hey, we'd like to come in here and minister to your people. And I'm thinking, what is this Jewish boy from New York telling this Catholic monk that he wants to minister to the people? And the guy said, "Okay, you could come in, but whatever you do, don't worship in the chapel. And I go, well, what is it? It was an old elementary school, but they had set up a chapel in there. They said, if someone comes in and lights a candle, you could talk to them. So we came back and did that. And then the next week we came back and then, you know, I said, God is telling us to worship him in that chapel. And I know the priest said not to, but I think we need to listen to God. So we prayed for the priest and he wound up getting another job in an archdiocese in Kansas City. So we wound up worshiping in there. And then people from all over the shelter would just come into that room and the presence of God would minister to these people. And I was seeing God moving outside the four walls of the church. We started doing that every week. And then the Salvation Army called us and said, hey, we heard what you guys are doing. And we've got this survival shelter with 300 guys that every other shelter has rejected. They're on drugs. They sniff paint. They, But we want them inside so they don't get beat up on the street. Can you guys come and minister to them? So I said, sure, let's do it. We'll be there Friday night. So we showed up and had my sermon prepared. And I was not prepared to see a bunch of guys with rags in their mouth, sniffing paint, cursing me out. God wanted to pull the knife and said, if you tell me God loves me, I'm going to kill you. And I said, we were not prepared for that (laughs) at all. And I said, you know what, guys, we need to be praying a lot more if we're going to be walking in that place. So we started praying and and really interceding for those people, 300 guys that everyone else in the whole world has given up on. This was it. They bring rice and beans to them. They lie on a bed in this old warehouse. And we came with the love of Jesus. And we did it week after week, month after month, year after year. And we saw amazing Amazing things happen. That reminds me of the story when you said that he was going to cut you up with the knife. And if you keep telling about Jesus loves you. And that reminds me of Nikki Cruz, what he said to David Wilkerson. Remember the, the book and the movie Cross of the Switchblade? Of course, yeah. you and I both know Nikki now. We both knew David Wilkerson. When Nikki was a gang member, he said, if you keep telling me about Jesus, I'm going to chop you in a, a hundred pieces. I think David Wilkerson yeah, said yeah. that every piece will cry out that Jesus loves you. Yeah, it's amazing. But anyway, we were doing five services a week, bringing the church to the people that weren't going to church. And not only were they not going to church, the church wants nothing to do with them because they could add nothing to the coffers of the church. But to me, it was like Luke 4.18, Matthew 25, Isaiah 58. 
what you're doing to I said, guys, we're ministering to Jesus. Yeah. Do you know what I, I, what that really means? The honor that I have ministering to people, the least of the least of these. So we continue to do that week after month. After five years of continuing to do that, God just made it clear, okay, you coming in and out of the city five times a week, bringing a worship team and a prayer team and all that. It's time for you to unpack your bags and start a church in the city. Oh, and Bob Jones, who's a prophet, told us that when you start this church, you people are going to be trash pickers. And I said, well, what does that mean? I'm a guy. I've got a college degree. He said, you're going to take trash who the world counts as trash and turn that trash into treasure. And that treasure is going to first tell the church and then the world about the faithfulness of God. And it was just an amazing word that he gave us. And that's right while we were meeting in an old storefront down there next to an S&M shop, a tattoo parlor and a gay bar right on Koufax. And we were just asking God, what do you want us to do, God? What do you want us to do? We'd meet there once a month. We didn't know anything about starting a church, really. I didn't. I just knew about reaching people with a simple message of God's love. And he just said, go to New York and meet with Dave Wilkerson. I didn't know who he was. I never met him. But a friend of mine had a dream, and the dream was, look for the parable in the upper room. So I remembered what Bob Jones said, trash into treasure. Now look for the parable in the upper room. We had no idea what that meant. So when we got to New York, we found out that Dave Wilkerson's outreach in New York City was called the Upper Room. And it was right in Hell's Kitchen, right around 8th Avenue and 50th Street. We landed the day that they were meeting. So I said, we need to go up there. So we went up and we went to this place. And I mean, it was heavy duty guys nodding out in the hallways we're climbing the steps to get up there guys shooting up but i remember walking in that room and i felt the anointing of god so strong and i saw all these hardcore street guys just laying at the altar and i go what the heck is going on here a guy was playing guitar i think he had three strings on it but he was just worshiping and loving god and and then all of a sudden this guy walks up to the microphone he said i was walking past here eight years ago. I was a male prostitute selling my body for drugs and God drew me up to this place and he saved me. And now I'm having an opportunity to share the faithfulness and testimony of God. And then I'm thinking, well, there's trash into treasure telling us the church about the faithfulness of God. And I'm thinking there's Bob Jones's word over us. And then what really freaked me out was there was a parable in the upper room on a grease board. And I said, I'm not (laughs) my brother-in-law's dream before we got to look for the parable in the upper room. I go, I'm not even going to look at that. I was so blown away. And I finally said, "Okay, I'm going to look at the parable in the upper room. And it basically said what I've told you figuratively, I'm going to show you plainly about who my father is. And everything in that trip, from the trash into treasure, because he said, I want a multiracial, multicultural, multigenerational, multi-economic church. And I said, I've never seen anything like that. But now when we went to Dave Wilkerson's church, that's exactly what it looked like. He had 50 different cultures in one row. Everything that he told us, now he was going to show us. And he did that this whole trip before Church in the City ever started. I'll get and I'll finish with this, that we were out driving around. I showed the the team that we had where I grew up and we we stopped at this deli. We walked in there. I had to use the bathroom. 
And my wife and I walked in and the guy said, hey, what do you guys do? And the guy behind the counter and he said, well, my husband's a pastor. And the guy said, well, that's a good business, isn't it? I mean, that's how the world sees it. She said, that might be for some, but we care for the poor and the needy, widows, orphans. We work with gang members and so on. And then the guy's countenance changed. He said, now that's something... I can get behind. Wow. And he walked behind the counter and he put all this gourmet food together and he put it all and he gave me a loaf of bread so fresh that it draped over my my shoulder. Meanwhile, my team is in the car thinking I'm I'm going to the bathroom. God is speaking to us. I walk out with all this food and I said God spoke to us. He said if we do what's on his heart, he's going to treat us gourmet style. Wow. At that point we were in a storefront on Colfax that someone lent us. Now we're in an amazing place how, because we remain faithful to what God called us to do. Well, I've been a part of that journey. I know that we knew each other when you had that the old Safeway store. You had this vision for a dilapidated synagogue that had been left and Satanists were using it and it was dilapidated. But you saw the value that even taking what seemed like trash and turning it into treasure not just with people, but a place for those kinds of people to go. And for all the years, I've, in fact, you have 30-year anniversary coming up of the church. Yes. Uh, in fact, I'm looking at a picture now that you were telling me the other day that the cornerstone on your building and your uh, what it used to be a, a dilapidated synagogue used by Satanists when it was left and abandoned, mm -hmm. you totally fixed that whole place up, got all the pigeons out, cleaned everything out, and turned it into this fabulous place called Church in the City, Beth Abraham, and the cornerstone, which is Psalm 118, verse 22, and it says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And literally, according to your city records, that spot is the center of all of Denver. Yeah, when the city came around surveying, and they said, this is the center point that we're taking all our surveys, I got someone left me a note that said that, and never could have imagined putting a stone from Israel that was Jerusalem stone that came in from Israel on that synagogue. And Psalm 118.22, no Jewish person can have an issue with that. But we all understand that the stone that who was rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. Because even though that was an Orthodox synagogue that prayed one day the Messiah would come, we were an answer to that prayer 50 years later that they prayed for from 1921 through 1969, and that prayer was finally answered in 2009. Everyone else tried to get in the way of that. Because I remember we walked around that building when it was abandoned and dilapidated. We walked around it, I think, like seven times, like the walls of Jericho, and you said, I'm glad that the literal walls didn't come down. Yeah, the, God the interesting thing is the city was going to tear that down. Oh, I mean, God. it was an eyesore. The, when the Satan became the church of Satan, and Satanists drew all these demons everywhere all around it, signed it, Alistair Crowley, the head of the church of Satan, only Satan can worship in this place. And, you know, it reminded me of the temple in, uh, back in the days of Epiphanies, when the temple was defiled, and, you know, and they were roasting pigs on the altar and having sex on the altar and defiling the temple of God. They, this place was defiled and it was ready to just be torn down and God resurrected it. And now because you've taken that and turned it into treasure, God's used you to reach so many different people that are still the homeless, the hurting, the oppressed, the poor, the widow, the orphan. Your wife heads up the missions team, goes all over the mm -hmm. world, taking teams out. It's an amazing thing that y'all have done there. And 
I've had the pleasure of knowing you close to 30 years through all these these seasons. And yeah, yeah, you were just a, a young kid when I met you. Yeah, well, so were you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish. Uh, yeah, we've been on a journey together, but I think the thing that knitted us together was that um, kindred spirit for the things that were on the heart of God, not the hype, not the religion, not the latest and greatest, but to continue to walk those ancient paths, to return to those ancient paths which were on the heart of God and never changed his heart. And when it comes to those things, uh, you know, we were talking the other day that back in 2000, I had the pleasure of speaking at a conference and I was one of two keynote speakers. The other keynote speaker was Derek Prince. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, how do I speak? I, I was speaking first and he got up to speak after me. I'm thinking, how do I do that? And I was sharing uh, uh, some scriptures about Isaiah 1 that uh, many of our prayers and gatherings and get-togethers and the raising of our hands, God doesn't regard because we forgot to take care of the widow, the oppressed, the orphan, and so on. And, and he gets up after me and he says, you know, one thing I wish I had done in all these decades of ministry, if I could go back to start over, I would include talking about the heart of God for the need for the orphan, the widow, the poor, and the oppressed. And I found out that later that year, he actually put out a booklet called Discover God's Heart for the Needy, Orphans, Widows, the Poor, and the Oppressed. I thought, wow. And, wow. and we actually give these out to so many different ministries because it's such a good challenge out of Isaiah 1. Wow. I know Mike Bickle, also, you just spoke over at their City of Hope. Yeah. Is there that has your same heart uh, over in Kansas City. Mike Bickle, also, a few years ago, we were talking and we talked about that that the prayer movement and the bridal worship and all these things and intercession is great, but it needs to move into the practicality, the tangibility of getting the gospel to go forth and be a, a tangible expression of Christ. And so that year, which was, I believe, the uh, end of 2014 going into 2015, Mike Bickle actually, the theme he used for his one thing that they were doing was actually Isaiah 1 as well. The idea of bringing prayer, intercession, get together in gatherings, with this greater purpose of justice, the poor, the needy, the orphan, and the widow. And I thought, there's Amen. something to that. When we do what God says to do, his presence shows up, and he does things only he can do. Yeah, the prayer move opens it up, but then the follow-through with the actual being the hands and feet of God to fulfill those prayers is it's sometimes a missing ingredient of some of the prayer movements that they pray and pray and pray, but then, okay, now let us move ahead and uh, faith without works is is not really going to accomplish God's kingdom purposes. So right. I think both, it's not an either or. Well, like James says, a pure and undefiled religion is to take care of the widow and the orphan, right? And to, and to walk unspotted of the world. I know we spent hours together recently, but I could talk to you hours about this. It's really about the word of our testimony and overcoming by the blood of the lamb. And it's time and time again. And you're such a humble person in the sense that, you know, you've been on my board for Somebody Cares International. You you actually officially facilitate Somebody Cares Denver, one of our yeah. chapters and centers there for many, many years and continue to do that and doing incredible work. And you've been on the board of Promise Keepers before, you know, during even during his heyday. And you walk in such humility, but with such a great authority, because I do believe you've never been enamored with celebrity or the grandiose. You are just about loving people. In your church of the day, it blew me away. You have Indonesian congregation, City, uh, City Blessing Church. You have Ethiopian and Somalian and Nigerian and Ugandan, and you have all these different nationalities there and ethnicities 
that are part of your church, Church in the City Beth Abraham. And to me, that's a picture of the kingdom of God. And so you really are going to the nations, but you're also, the nations are coming to you. Yeah, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And I believe that that is a mandate for all peoples. I think, you know, if heaven's going to be every tribe and tongue, and he promised us heaven on earth, let's let's do it. Let's all come together, because everyone brings something to the table. Now, your building is now considered like a historical site, but every week you actually still continue all these years, and you have, in downstairs, you have a gathering and what do you call it? David's tent. Well, tell us about some of the ministries like that, because in fact, if people want to find out more, we did a special article in our re- recent magazine, our Somebody Cares Summer Mid-Year Magazine. And also it's on our website at somebodycares.org under Somebody Cares Denver, a hub in the city for the lost. And it really has become a hub in so many ways. Tell us a bit about some of the different things to reach the poor, the needy, and bringing people together at, at the church there. Well, a lot, obviously, before COVID, Church in the City was always known as a place to that cares for the community, for whomsoever shall come. And we've done morning manna breakfasts uh, for the homeless. We have our food bank where we're actually a center for other food banks, uh, we get like thousands and thousands of pounds of food that we actually supply other food banks with that they recognize we are a hub in the heart of the city to provide that. Food Bank of the Rockies partners with us. We are partnering with Christ Body Ministries, Somebody Cares Denver, Church on the Rock, three other different churches from Evergreen and so on that meet on uh, Saturdays. And we provide shower trucks, washer and dryer trucks, groceries, meal. But more than that, we have the gospel being presented. We have doctors there as well. It's a place you can get your medical needs met, your shower, your clothes, your food and the gospel all being preached in the same location in the heart of the city amongst all different ministries coming together. It's all about the kingdom. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a kingdom thing, and that's what excites me. I, I love partnering with other ministries. We have a ministry that reaches out to the local largest high school in Denver, East High School, that meets there pursuing biblical manhood. And we have the guys come in and the girls, and they're hearing about God, where most of them will never hear about it or go to church, but they're coming on at their lunchtime because we're right next door to the school and they're hearing about it. Of course, you give them some food, that'll bring those kids in, but then you feed them And I've seen so many kids throughout the years, for 30 years in doing that, so many different graduating classes and kids you run into that God has really got a hold of their lives. So it's kingdom partnerships that really, uh, to me, God's favor is upon that. You know, the unity of the body for his purposes, not about building our kingdom, but his. Well, we've always talked about it's not about just kumbaya to navel gaze, but authentic Unity that's bigger than us is serving God and loving people together, having a passion for God and compassion for souls. And, you know, in the nearly 30 years I've known you, this wasn't just a stepping stone for you to do something bigger and greater, more grandiose. It's who you still are. You've never changed from that time that God had you laying down there and, and recognizing who he was, who Christ was that it's never changed your heart for the nations and for all peoples. And even to those who disagree with you, maybe have been rude or mean, but yet you still continue to share the light of Christ to many, many other people. 
Yeah, and you know what keeps me going up in the old Safeway store? And he was our neighbor. Yeah, he lived in the dumpster next to the church. <laughs> and he was really a tough, homeless, alcoholic. And we reached out to him, reached out to him and ministered to him. His name was Floyd Ridley. We did something that other ministries make a mistake of as well. You know, when someone that comes from that so much of that type of bondage and then gives their life to the Lord, we have a tendency to want to put them out there. So we brought them to churches to give testimonies. We put them on Christian TV to give testimonies, but it was too soon. And he wound up the pressure of having to live that out. I learned that from Jackie Pullinger. Yeah. Don't lay hands too quickly. But what happened was, so he fell away and we didn't know what happened to Floyd Ridley. And it really broke my heart. A few years ago, I got a, a friend of ours who lives in Pittsburgh, who helped start our church, sent me a, a newspaper article from Kentucky. And it was a whole article on Floyd Ridley, how he's become an amazing speaker to people all over the country, has written books about how what God has done in his life. And he received the Kentucky Colonel Award given him by the governor of Kentucky, the same award that Winston Churchill got, Lyndon Johnson got, Wow. And, that, and Floyd Ridley got, I mean, and that's the type of company he is in now with the type of honor he has. So you never know when you're doing things as unto the Lord, you know, you might be the one to plant, but someone else comes along and waters and God gets all the glory for this. When I read that and, and all the books he's written now, and all, it's like, the guy lived in the dumpster next to the church. So it's all to God be the glory. But that's what keeps us going, is it? It's yeah. not all the accolades. It's not the awards. And it's no, not it's all the lives change like that. Lives I mean, change. You know, only God can do that. Amen. I, only God can do that. Well, you're at a time where you could have retired a long time ago. But oh, yes. God keeps refiring you, my friend. Oh, thank you. You know, I've been searching the scriptures for the word retirement. I haven't been able to find it yet, but if someone out there can find it for me, I'll I'll receive well, it. But if not, I I'm going to keep going. I learned from an Orthodox rabbi friend of mine in Israel who has become a dear friend over the years. He said there is actually no official word in Hebrew for retirement. Amen. Now, the, man, I can see. So we, it's time we might go to new assignments, but we don't officially exactly. Retire. Um, we're having too much fun. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're we're just seeing what God's doing. It's and watching what He's doing okay. and joining Him in the like well, the old Henry Blackaby. See what God's doing and join Him. And Don't join ask him. him to join what you're doing and bless what you're doing. Bless what He's doing. Well, man, there, this has been a very, very uh, encouraging, provoking time of just discussion with you. And I believe everybody who's listening to this podcast and those who will be sharing it, yeah. reading more about what Church in the City and Beth Abraham is doing and is our official chapter, Somebody Cares Denver. I just thank God for you, Michael. I, I know I kept you longer than we talked about, but I can go on for hours with you. Oh, yeah. There's so there. much. I just, you know. Think of so much, you know. There's more I wrote about you as well in, in my book, Mending the Net, Bringing Hope in a Hurting World. We talk a little bit about what you all are doing. But I wanted to just in closing, again, we don't have to say your, your family's names, but recently, well, a, a few months back, your twin daughters yeah. happened to have babies on the same day at the same hospital, not intending to. It wasn't planned. They weren't induced. 
It was they both happened to have babies on the same day, and they're twins, and that's never happened in that hospital. Yeah, in the same hospital that they were born in. Oh, they were born in that hospital yeah. too? Yeah, yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, in the same place at the same time. Yeah, it was just one of those, you know, God's a double portion of blessing. You know? well, I, I remember as you continue to reach the poor and the needy and the oppressed, but over the years, God has recognized, he's seen it in you, and I was actually there with you when the Denver Nuggets basketball team honored you, the whole team, and and uh, they opened up the whole floor and had tables, and it was a big to-do, and yeah, I, yeah. Was, I was there at that special occasion right. where they gave you the Golden Nugget Award. Yeah, that's right. I remember that. And the mayor was there, too. Yeah, and the governor. Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah, the governor was sharing about us, and I'm going, I didn't even know he knew about what we were doing. And he's sharing all this stuff about what we're doing. And I go, well, to God be the glory. To God be the glory. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, one of your daughters ended up marrying an NFL football player. And yeah. brother's son-in-law is, is now um, doing stuff across the country, helping in uh, educating people on the abuse of marijuana and all those kinds of things and, and what it does to adolescents. And, yeah. and so you've got an incredible legacy that's carrying on even in your footsteps. Yeah, we're blessed and uh, really honored. And I know that as you remain faithful to God, he remains faithful to you. And uh, it's just been a tremendous privilege and honor serving him and, and serving alongside Somebody Cares Denver, because it's so hard to find people that have the same DNA, Amen. spiritual DNA, that have no other agenda but, you know, to serve God and to serve others. We have shirts that just say, serve God, serve people. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's the what I've heard say. At the end of the day, many times people may misunderstand us. We, have, of course, in our human frailty, make mistakes. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, all these decades later, we're still here. We still love God. We're still serving people in, in the best way that we know how. And, you know, your wife, Brenda, when we were there, when I was with you guys recently, gave me a great book. I just opened it up called mm-hmm. The Prophets by Abraham Joshua Heschel which is a Jewish rabbi, he passed in 1972. But, oh, my gosh, just the first few pages of just, I mean, I'm blown away. And I would recommend for people to get that book called The Prophets by an Orthodox rabbi that was actually considered by Christians and Jews of the last centuries one of the most theologically quoted U.S. uh, theologians ever as far as Jewish theologians. So it's amazing. I'll let her know what you said. Amen. Yeah, she'll be blessed by that. Well, Michael, for all those that will be listening to this podcast, would you just close some prayer? And would you encourage everyone that they, too, by simply making themselves available to God, not caring what people think, but just loving God, loving people, connecting to those of like heart, what God can do and leaving a lasting legacy through their lives as well? Can I uh, end this with the ironic blessing? Is Absolutely, that, yeah. But I do encourage everyone listening. Uh, it's really not very difficult. You you really find out what God is doing and you just join him and what's on his heart and uh, his favor will come and, and provide everything you need. We're not very well educated, but we are. He looks at the heart. You know, man looks at the outward, but God will look at your heart. And if you have a heart for the things that are on his heart, he will provide everything you need exceedingly and abundantly more than you could ever hope for imagine. I look back at the 30 years that we've been, uh, actually it's been uh, over 35 years in the city 
uh, ministering. And, and I just see, we call it connecting the dots. We just see his hand and his favor just guiding and leading and taking you to the place that he wants you to be. So I encourage you to do that. And I want to uh, just end with the prayer from God's mouth, uh, his heart of blessing over us. It's a Jewish blessing that's in Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, that has uh, been passed on uh, from Moses to Aaron to the priest to even this day. And it's even the prayer as Jesus as a high priest, when he it said whenever a high priest would raise up their hands to pray, he would pray this prayer. And Jesus, our high priest, before he ascended into heaven, said he raised up his hands and prayed over his disciples. And after he said that prayer, they went away so joyful, it says, when he ascended, because these words that he would have said as the high priest that were said for thousands of years made them joyful because they were a prayer of blessing. I'll share them in English and then in Hebrew. That those listening and those watching, that the Lord would bless you and keep you. That the Lord would make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord would lift up his countenance, turn his face to you, his favor be upon you, and give you his peace. Thus he goes on to say, I will put my name upon my sons and my daughters May God's name be placed on every one of you who are a son and daughter of the living God. And the words in the Hebrew Old Testament. <speaking in Hebrew> May the peace of God be upon you, yes. because the Prince of Peace, the Holy One of Israel, lives in your heart. And I pray these things in the name of Yeshua, Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. 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 Head over now to a awordinseasonpodcast.org and let us know how we're doing by taking a quick survey. If you need prayer today, reach out to prayer at somebodycares.org or you can call or text our 24-hour Somebody Cares America prayer line, 855-459-CARE. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.